Good morning, Pensacola. Andrew McKay and the Pensacola Morning News starts right now. self-executing but then in that case what would the role of the state be uh, uh, or is it entirely up to Congress to implement uh, the disqualification uh, in section 3 it is entirely up to Congress so the arguments for the Supreme Court about two hours worth of arguments yesterday over the uh, question of whether the Colorado uh, Colorado can disqualify President Trump from there Pre- or President Trump electors, anyway, uh, whether they can disqualify him from their ballot or not under the 14th Amendment Insurrection Clause, which says that if you've uh, engaged in an insurrection and sworn an oath to support the Constitution and uh, you're of various positions or offices underneath the United States, then you are no longer eligible to be, um, well, you're not eligible to be any of those things. And then, also, if the Congress does not pardon you or basically declare you to be eligible. That's the sort of shorthand version of what the amendment says. It's a part of the 14th Amendment that most people never even heard of until this year. I I almost think like some people who are uh, Trump opponents woke up one day and were like, did you know it says this? (laughs) Do you know how we can use that? So now it's all the way at the Supreme Court. And as uh, Justice Thomas there was asking uh, of John Mitchell, who was arguing on behalf of Trump, is so your argument is that the 14th Amendment disqualification provisions against an insurrectionist are not self-executing. And the reason that's important is because there are, there are kind of two fundamental issues that I think are going to be the determining question in this case. And it's, it's not actually about whether Trump engaged in an insurrection. They didn't even talk about that. I mean, barely, just a tiny little bit. Um, what they talked about the two big issues, number one, was whether the 14th Amendment's disqualification is self-executing or not. And then sort of a corollary to that is can a single state or can a small group of states decide for themselves whether to disqualify somebody or is it something that has to come federally from Congress? And they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, but it, it, those are going to be the questions. And so the position of the Trump team is that the 14th Amendment doesn't of its own verbiage and the fact that it is in the Constitution does not in and of itself disqualify anybody immediately. It requires congressional action in addition to that in order to disqualify somebody. So John Roberts asks the question, Wait, so you're telling me that if somebody is a known insurrectionist, did swear the oath, and is running for a prohibited office— that that person cannot be removed from the ballot by, for example, the secretary of state of a state where they're trying to become on the ballot. What if somebody came into a state secretary of state's office and said, uh, um, I took the oath specified in Section 3. I participated in an insurrection um, uh, and uh, I want to be on the ballot. 
can the sec does the Secretary of State have the authority in that situation to say, no, you're disqualified? No, the Secretary of State could not do that consistent with term limits. And by the way, this is, if you, you probably did not listen to this yesterday, but they spent about the first half, I spent the first half hour of this uh, case kind of befuddled by some of the terms they were using because I couldn't figure out what term limits had to do with any of this. Well, turns out term limits is the uh, is the um, lawyer, and I wasn't the only one. There were Supreme Court justices who were, who were equally baffled by this. <laughs> term limits is the name of a case, Term Limits v. Thornton from 1995, a case that said that states cannot impose additional restrictions such as term limits on its representatives in the federal government beyond those provided in the Constitution. You remember we talked about here, like, you know, the state of Florida is wanting to have term limits on con- con- Congress members, but we have to basically tell the federal government, hey, we'd like you to do this. We can't do it ourselves. That's been struck down as recently as 1995. That's in, 23 states had them, and they all got struck down. And so, But it's not about term limits per se. It's about adding additional restrictions, and the argument by the Trump team is requiring the decertification or the disqualification of Trump or on the other hand requiring that he show Congress will accept him as a candidate because Congress by a two-thirds vote can accept somebody who is a former insurrectionist requiring that for him to be eligible to be on the ballot is adding a requirement is adding something that's not already in the Constitution and that is one of the key linchpins of their case. that's not the only one but that is one of the key linchpins of their case is if they can prove that then they win and he says, look, the way this has been done in the past, after the Civil War, there were all kinds of examples of just like this. It seems weird to us because what the Trump team is basically saying is Trump needs to be on the ballot because you can't prove that he won't be forgiven by Congress. And you got to let him run. And then you got to swear him in or get into that vicinity after he wins. And then Congress takes up the question of whether they're going to forgive him or not and allow him to be president. And you can't disqualify him now. And that's how, and it seems weird. How can we vote on somebody to be president? We don't even know whether they're going to be allowed to be in office. Well, he says that's how they did it in the past. Because even if the candidate is an admitted insurrectionist, Section 3 still allows the candidate to run for office and even win election to office and then see whether Congress lifts that disability after the election. This happened frequently in the wake of the 14th Amendment where Confederate insurrectionists were elected to Congress, and sometimes they obtained a waiver, sometimes they did not, and each house would determine for itself whether to seat that elected insurrectionist because each house is the sole judge of the qualifications of its members. So if a state banned even an admitted insurrectionist from the ballot, it would be adding to and altering the Constitution's qualifications for office. Now, now of course, the other side says, you're crazy. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Because there are all kinds of people who might run for president, for example, who would be ineligible because they're not natural-born citizens or they're of the wrong age or they're running for a third term. And nobody would think there's anything weird about the states disqualifying a 32-year-old. A 34-year-old might turn by the time they're president, but a 32-year-old from running for president. And so why would this be any different? President Trump's other arguments for reversal ignore the constitutional role of the states in running presidential elections. Under Article 2 and the 10th Amendment, states have the power to ensure that their citizens' electoral votes are not wasted on a candidate who is constitutionally barred from holding office. States are allowed to safeguard their ballots by excluding those who are underage, 
foreign-born, running for a third presidential term, or as here, those who have engaged in insurrection against the Constitution in violation of their oath. So what he's saying is that we know there's three very obvious disqualifiers to being president, and states disqualify people all the time for not satisfying those. This is no different. This is a disqualification. Therefore, you know, he's an insurrectionist. He's off the ballot. That's it. The difference is what? Congress can decide to allow an insurrectionist to serve an office by a two-thirds vote. They cannot allow a 32-year-old to serve an office. They cannot allow a non-natural-born citizen, and they cannot allow for a third term. So once the fact is known, there's never a question about the law. In this case, even if the fact is known, even if you grant that he broke an oath that he didn't take because he never said support, that's it, the presidential oath is different from other oaths, even if you grant that the presidency is one of the offices supposed to be prohibited, which it's not listed in the list, and that's a weird part about the 14th Amendment too, and and even if you uh, uh, grant that you know the insurrection happened, and he, he, he doesn't matter because he still might be eligible because you have to find out whether Congress is going to pardon him, sort of allow him, and you can't find that out until he actually runs, gets elected, and then Congress takes action, which is what they did in the you know with the former Confederates. One of the other issues in this case, is, and this is one of the precedents that they kept talking about, and it's a weird one to be a precedent. It's called Ex Parte Griffin, 1869. And it has to do with a case that was not heard at the Supreme Court. It was heard at the appellate court level. But the person who wrote the opinion later went on to be on the Supreme Court. And what that case says, an odd case, but you had a former uh, Confederate who was a judge in, oh, Virginia, I think it was, and the guy gets convicted in court, happens to be black, but they specifically said it's not relevant to anything. And he challenged the conviction saying the 14th Amendment would ha- disqualifies my judge. My judge can't issue a, a verdict against me. Therefore, I should be let free because the conviction can't stand because he's a former Confederate. In other words, he's making the argument that the 14th Amendment disqualifies his judge who ruled over his case. And the appellate court, again, with the opinion written by somebody who eventually went on to be on the Supreme Court, said, no, no, no. Action has to be taken by Congress. Congress didn't take action to disqualify this judge, so his ruling stands until Congress throws him out of the out of the court, basically. And that has stood for like 150 years, and Congress has made actions on the basis of that, even passing a law after that case, to kind of formalize something like that when it came to the Confederates. I mean, they took action. So that court case has stood as the pattern of handling the 14th Amendment Section 3 issues, and that's the argument that the Trump seems – and even, by the way, you know, some of the uh, uh, Supreme Court justices seem to side with this. So if this, if this all seems you know, a bit complicated, a bit much more than just the – well, the people want him to be on the ballot, therefore she – that's not going to be the issue. The issue is going to be the very technical question of whether – the president is a prohibited office, whether the president, if it is a prohibited office, took the oath that's referenced in the in the, the amendment, which he has not, okay, the support oath as opposed to the protect and defend oath, um, and then whether, whether there was an insurrection or not is probably not going to be a big issue, but whether he can be disqualified from the ballot by an independent decision by an individual state like Colorado— and what that would mean for the future of our electoral system if individual states can decide, hey, Trump is off our ballot, you know, 
Well, could a state like Florida decide, well, Biden's off our ballot because, you know, he has supported Alejandro Mayorkas' willingness to let, you know, millions of people come through the border. That counts as an insurrection, too. Therefore, Biden's off the ballot. And Ohio and California and New York and Illinois and Texas could all run a kind of tit-for-tat scenario where you throw our guy off, we're going to throw your guy off. And then you have, you know, four states with both people on the ballot, and those become the swing states that determine the whole election. That's a, that's a real possibility that the Supreme Court justices were worried about because Colorado throwing Trump off looks like abuse of partisanship rather than a genuine application of the 14th Amendment to some. And we haven't even gotten into all of the issues, but that, that's kind of the general landscape here of the questions that they're dealing with. Now, what do I think the Supreme Court's going to do? Well, I give you the analysis that I gave you before they had this hearing, which is, I don't think there's any chance that they're going to write their opinion so that Colorado is right. Trump is going to see the deadline is going to pass. I think that I forget when the deadline is next week. Maybe it's really quick. So it's unlikely that the opinion is going to come out before the deadline to put people on the ballot is going to happen. So we're going to have additional complications in Colorado. But Colorado's a blue state, so maybe it doesn't matter too much. But um, so he may not actually wind up being on the ballot in Colorado, but the decision is going to say he should be. And that's going to mean all the other states are going to have to follow that practice no matter what they want to do. I think it's it's at least going to be 7-2. to two. It might be 8-1. to one. It might even be 9-0. to zero. I hope it's 9-0. to zero. I hope it's 9-0. to zero. Not because I want Trump on the ballot. That, that's a completely separate question. But even Sotomayor and Kagan were asking the right kind of questions yesterday. And Katanji Brown-Jackson, you know, all three of the liberals were asking the right kind of questions yesterday, indicating that... Even they were skeptical about the claims of Colorado. And it's interesting because Elena Kagan, who doesn't usually ask a lot of questions, she had the money clip from yesterday that has been played on all of the news sources. I don't remember if they played at the top of the hour here at Fox, but um, that's this has been the money clip that everybody has been playing out of the whole two hours. And they're right because it's her and because it gets right to the heart of the issue. You know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? Sorry, that was actually the follow-up to the one that everybody's been playing. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal, national means. That's it. How can any one state be the gatekeeper to the presidency through this provision that in its conception was meant to restrict the power of southern states to have an influence on national politics, right? It was punishment against the former Confederate states because they would have used their bigotry, okay, or their political position in order to keep the kind of candidates they didn't want in federal office off the ballots for all different kinds of things. And the 14th Amendment is suddenly going to be the way that the Confederate states get to keep being semi-Confederates even after it. I mean, it's it wasn't it's something meant for state power. is meant for federal power against the states. And now Colorado is using it as state power against the feds. Like, everything about it is upside down. So when I say it's going to be a probably a 7 to 2 at least maybe an 8-1, to one. and I, honestly, if I had to bet, I'd say it's going to be a 9-0 to zero ruling. 
I think it's going to be a 9-0 to spanking of Colorado, and Trump is going to be on the ballot in all the other states, and maybe only by te- for technical reasons not be in time in Colorado. It's 523, and at all of the other analysts that have watched this yesterday said the exact same thing. So um, this is likely to be a very, very unsurprising outcome. 525 on News Radio 92.3. I'm Andrew McKay. Hey, everyone. It's Joe Montana. Spreading the word about pneumococcal pneumonia, a potentially serious bacterial lung disease that can be life-threatening. If you're 65 or older like me, you're at increased risk. So what's the game plan? A strong defense. Pneumococcal pneumonia can strike at any time in any season, so you shouldn't wait to help protect yourself. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist about vaccination today and learn more at knownemonia.com. That's K-N-O-W pneumonia.com. Sponsored by Pfizer. Hey, this is Dr. Ben McMillan. I do a show on the Pensacola Expert Panel. We talk about your health problems. Let me educate you about the Activator Method of Adjusting, which offers a safe and effective alternative to traditional manual adjustments. So whether you've been hurt in a car accident or have been suffering from back or neck pain, chiropractic care could be your solution and not just a temporary fix. Join me this morning on the Pensacola Expert Panel. The Pensacola Expert Panel, 9 to 11 weekdays on News Radio 92.3 AM 1620. As a mom, comforting my family is what I do best. Vicks Vapor Stick provides soothing, non-medicated Vicks Vapors in an easy-to-apply stick. And it dries fast, so there's no mess. I use it to comfort myself <sighs> and my family. <sighs> Thanks, Mom. Vicks Vapor Stick, soothing comfort for the whole family. And when you need more comfort for yourself, try Vicks Vapor Shower for steamy Vicks Vapors. Use as directed. Vapor Stick for use ages 4 and up. Vapor Shower use for adults only. Pensacola right now with Joe and Austin. It's like headline news for radio every day, 4 to 7 on News Radio 92.3. Informative, local, dependable. I'm telling you, baby, that's not mine. Seven on News Radio 92.3, informative, local, dependable. We had a Santa Rosa County Commission meeting. We had an Escambia County meeting. Two of them. Uh, two of them yesterday. Pensacola City Council meeting. The Trump hearing. And um, I, I got to... I got to the Trump and the other stuff. I have to wait till Monday. <laughs> Just, you know, it will. Uh, Steve Taylor's in the newsroom this morning with our headlines. Steve. Well, good morning and happy Friday. The classified uh, documents case against President Biden will not lead to any charges and is now closed. That report notes Biden voluntarily returned the documents and cooperated with the investigation, while former President Trump now faces an indictment for allegedly obstructing the government's efforts to retrieve his classified materials. And they said they will not bring charges because no jury will convict a forgetful old man <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean it's it's a devastating report on biden's mental health well it, being yeah. a being an old man myself uh what's my name uh, uh last night former president trump won the republican caucuses in nevada in a landslide just hours after he also secured a victory in the uh, u.s virgin islands caucuses he didn't face any major competition in nevada as former south carolina governor governor uh, nikki haley chose to compete in nevada's primary which was on tuesday and lost to none of the above a loose marsupial is back with 
with its owner in Hillsborough County. You see, the sheriff's office there said they got a call from a woman saying there's a kangaroo hopping around her apartment complex. <laughs> deputies arrived at the complex, but the kangaroo had already hopped a mile, a mile away. That's where deputies were able to get the kangaroo into a trailer, and the FWC was called in. They found the owner. The deputies say the owner had the proper paperwork that one needs to keep a wild animal as a pet, and the owner was allowed to retrieve the kangaroo and bring it home. The question is, 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 is a kangaroo a service animal? Could be. Could be. Yeah, definitely an emotional support animal. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for the update. Yeah, and by the way, in the caucus, Trump did pull 60,000 votes. Remember, the question had been, you know, would he get more votes than Haley got? And she got 20,000 in her, uh, 25, 23, something like that, in her uh, primary. And then 43 or 5, something like that, voted for none of the above. So he did well enough even to overcome that kind of question. Hey, if you're thinking about that next vehicle, Frontier Motors is a great place to go looking for. Good quality, almost new cars. One, two, three years old, low miles, great condition. And, you know, the kind of cars where you can try a whole bunch right up against each other. You know, every make and model you can possibly imagine, you know, and like shop in one place instead of having to go all around town to go to this one and this one and this one. And then if you don't find exactly what you want, they can go find it. But you might, like we did, we just, you know, we went there because they had a car. Great selection, 300 or so cars on the lot at any moment, and uh, that's the reason why so many people like them, and because they take care of you even after the sale. Frontier Motors, serving the Pensacola community for more than 25 years, behind the big buffalo on Beverly Parkway. Fox News, I'm Chris Foster. A report on President Biden's handling of classified documents finds not enough evidence to bring criminal charges. The president disagrees with the report's characterization of his memory. Here with Fox's Peter Ducey. In his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. President's attorneys called the repeated mentions of his memory in the report gratuitous, prejudicial, and inflammatory. Former President Trump wins the Nevada Republican caucuses, saying in Las Vegas... You know, if we win this state, we easily win the election in November. We have to win the election. Didn't have much competition. Nikki Haley declined to participate, claiming the process was rigged in Trump's favor. She lost a non-binding primary in Nevada Tuesday to none of these candidates. America's listening to Fox News. Good morning. It's 531 right now, 61 degrees and cloudy. I'm Steve Taylor for News Radio Pensacola. It's a step in the right direction. That's the message from Escambia County leaders over the revised offer Beulah Town Center LLC sent last month for the OLFA property. District 1 Commissioner Jeff Bagosh wants more than $20 million for the 290 acres, but the discussions are going to continue. I like the fact that you're willing to um, live by the master plan. That's important to this board and the community. I just... I, I don't feel 10 months is appropriate. I think six months is the maximum amount of time that I'd feel comfortable as a due diligence period. And I, I appreciate the fact that you went up from 100000 to 150000 but I need to see a larger good faith deposit. Bergosh also addressed the offer that came in this week from Precision Capital. They offered the same $20 million price tag for nearly the entire property. Bergosh says it's not a serious offer and doesn't at all follow the spirit of the master plan. A man was arrested after he was pulled over yesterday, allegedly driving under the influence and with multiple drugs. A Florida Highway Patrol report says 35-year-old Eric Pope was driving a Toyota sedan and could not maintain lane and speed.
When a trooper pulled him over, they found that Pope was driving under the influence, according to the report. But during a search of the car, the trooper found methamphetamine, four types of prescription pills, THC wax and gummies, heroin powder and crack cocaine, as well as marijuana and drug paraphernalia, and other substances that were sent off for testing. Pope was also allegedly driving with a suspended license. He was arrested and charged with DUI and a bunch of other uh, counts. Santa Rosa County leaders are moving forward with a fact-finding mission to determine what the cost would be to house the largest U.S. flag in the state of Florida. Yesterday, the board approved a motion to allow the staff to obtain bids for the project, although it's still not clear how the county would pay for it. I'm telling you now, I'm against the taxpayer's money. I'm against the development center money taxes. We need to use that money for projects we're doing on the beach, okay? That's from Commissioner Ray Eddington. Ultimately, the conversation will continue once the bids are back. The plan calls for at least a 200-foot flagpole to be erected at the county administrative complex to go along with the other exterior improvements already in progress. Well, let's check that forecast for the weekend from Channel 3. This is meteorologist Brooke Richardson with your first morning weather update. We will have a cloudy day today with a 20% chance of a stray shower. High near 69 degrees. Overnight tonight, temperatures dropping near 62. Warm weather for the weekend, 70 degrees on Saturday with a 30% chance of a stray shower. Saturday night, temperatures dropping near 64. For Sunday, showers and thunderstorms possible, especially late in the day. 60% chance of rain. High near 71 Sunday with a low near 63. Stay connected to Channel 3 News First Morning Weather Team. Download the WEAR TV weather app. This is Brooke Richardson from the First Morning Weather Center. Thanks, Brooke. Right now, 61 degrees in Pensacola, 60 in Gulf Breeze, and 57 in Milton at 535. The next news is at 6. Breaking news anytime. I'm Steve Taylor for News Radio Pensacola. Informative, local, dependable. Ready for intelligent and thought-provoking conversation? Tune in to The Guy Benson Show on News Radio Pensacola. Weekdays from 2 till 4 p.m. on 92.3, 95.3, and AM 1620. Guy Benson, the brilliant and charismatic host, brings you a fresh perspective on the biggest stories of the day. Guy keeps you engaged and informed. Don't miss out on the intellectual thrill ride. Tune in to The Guy Benson Show on News Radio Pensacola from 2 till 4 p.m. It's the show that'll challenge your thinking and leave you wanting more on News Radio Pensacola. When you were 18, you spent your spring break in Cancun. The party was legendary, and you speak of it often, even though you don't remember half of it. The geeky kid who sat across from you in math class stayed home, practicing calculus. You made fun of her. A lot. That is, until last year, when you owed the IRS a lot of money and called the certified public accountants at Benakis & Associates. And she answered the phone. Who's laughing now? The number crunchers at Benakis & Associates live and breathe accounting and tax preparation. It's practically in their DNA. When you need to know what the heck a Form 656-PPV is, call Benakis & Associates. When you need a QuickBooks Pro Advisor, call Benakis & Associates. When you need someone who practices long division for fun, call Benakis & Associates. Now in the historic district on 120 South Alconies and online at flacpas.com. Benakis & Associates. Leave the numbers to the experts. Hi, this is Earl Ron. New South Window knows southern weather is unpredictable, and our Energy Star windows and doors will keep the heat in and the cold outside where it belongs. We prioritize keeping your family and your home comfortable all year round. Energy efficient products made, installed, and guaranteed for life. Get New South Proud. When you buy more, you can save more. Visit NewSouthWindow.com. New 
The Port of Pensacola is more than just a name. It's a powerhouse of economic opportunities, a strategic location that sparks growth and prosperity, contributing significantly to the local and regional economy with 23 incredible businesses that call this port home. Big names like C-Max Materials, GE Wind Energy, and soon the prestigious American Magic Sailing Team. Since 1754, the Port of Pensacola has been the driving force behind Northwest Florida's economic success. Explore more at portofpensacola.com. Local experts share their expertise on the Pensacola Expert Panel. It's Pep Talk on News Radio 923. Informative, local, dependable. You know, um, I was talking with uh, Wes Moreno uh, off off the air yesterday before we brought him on, and uh, I asked him, was he still good with the Run DMC that we usually play? And he's like, I don't know. How about Nelly? Batter up. <laughs> I'm like, Nelly sampling the Jeffersons. Okay, that's I. I wouldn't have expected that, but um, I, I, I'm Wes. I have you more as like a classic rock kind uh, kind of guy. Is that right? Man, I listen to I listen to everything: classic rock, country. Uh, 90s rock. I, I listen to everything almost. Oh, man, I love it. I love it. Well, we have, a, man, a huge agenda, and I wish all we had was the agenda for today because there's a lot of stuff on there that's worth talking about. But obviously, we got to talk about this letter, this ask for a vote of no confidence by the EMS union, and a long litany of complaints that they are raising against the chief and the deputy chief. And, um, you know, I, I read the response that y'all gave, and before we get into some of the particulars, I did want to give you a chance to just, you know, your response, you're the county administrator, uh, he works for you ultimately, your response to the letter. Well, you know, I, I read the letter, I read it a couple times, and so I, I've, I've been chewing on it a little bit, and we're going to dive in over there at EMS and get to the bottom of, of a few things. Uh, I'll say this, I, I, there seems to be a certain shift over there that seems to be not happy, to put it, uh, to put it lightly. But you know, when you have uh, over over 120 something positions and you got 99 percent of 16 people, well, okay, that puts it in context first and foremost. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to look into it and, and look into some things and see are there things we can do better and see just really what the issues are. I will say this: uh, you know, there is a, a contingency of folks, some of them former employees. Uh, just yes, or day before yesterday, I was on the phone with Eric, and uh, one of the super, EMS supervisors had gotten a call from his wife, and she's in tears because one of these former employees was sending her such hateful text messages. And I said, "Call the sheriff's department. I, I don't know what to do with them. Call the sheriff's department." Uh, you know that that's just that's just crazy. That that makes no sense. Now, and it's it really makes you wonder what what your real motivation is. And, but, you know, we got another former employee over there. <laughs> you know, he's got 30, over $37,000 in back child support. And he owes us over $6,000 because he flunked out of paramedic school. I mean, there's just things in the contingency of people over there that, quite honestly, that they're of low character. And, but that doesn't mean we can't improve some things. We will improve some things. Well, what but I'm going to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, and, uh, I have a couple of follow-up questions, and I, you know, I just because I take the I take the complaints seriously, and I take the concerns that a lot of us have about it. And you and I have talked so many times about EMS. I mean, we know that there's problems historically. Okay, one of the allegations is that under Chief Torcell, there's been a hundred or so 
EMTs and paramedics quit. Is that true? That's not the right number. <clears throat> I don't. Uh, I believe it's more. It's more like forty, maybe fifty. Some of them. We just had two resign the other day because one, both of them are re- relocating. To, I think one to Texas, and I forget where the other one's going. But you know, some of these things uh, happen, and some of them are have been disciplinary. And I, I'm not going to call a name to start start going down the list, but I mean things happen and, and things. Things when you when you try to change a culture in a place, there's always going to be resistance, and you don't change a culture in a, in a couple of years. It takes a little bit. The thing that I don't believe he gets credit for is, uh, you know, we've increased wages significantly in EMS. They're making more money than they've ever made. Additionally, uh, there's 18 new positions in this year's budget. That's his plan. He brought that to me. As a matter of fact, when I first stepped in, he, he started about the same time I stepped into this role as administrator. And uh, in the, the Santa Rosa, the lifeguard was sniping our employees. I said, I'm not going to have that. I said, what do we do? He laid the plan out, and we started working the plan. I met with Eric and Chief and uh, Chief Torsell and Fire Chief Adam Harrison just last week, last Wednesday, I believe it was. And... You know, we're talking about positions. We're talking about improvements. Uh, we got our first eight of 16 ambulances will be here hopefully by the end of the month. Uh, and then we got the other eight that are in, in build mode. They're building them now. I mean, some of these things take time. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying everything's perfect. I don't have a perfect department anywhere. There's always improvements that can be made. And we're going to make the improvements. And uh, I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to spend some time over there, and I'm, I'm going to start asking questions, and we're going to dig into it, and we'll get to the bottom of it. And um, the the one you know, if there, if it, I'm sorry, go ahead. no, 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 I was just uh, the, the one thing that that concerns me particularly over. I, I was looking yesterday at the last month and a half or so's worth of um, you know holding calls reports. And of course, this is a problem that you and I have talked about a lot. I know there's it's a complex issue with a lot of different factors, allocation of resources, availability mm-hmm. of personnel, availability of trucks, hospitals telling us to hold the wall, all of that. I get all that. But coming out of COVID, what you and I talked many times about is more people, more trucks, and coming out of COVID with the frivolous calls for COVID, we should be able to get better. And when I look at the numbers on hold calls, it doesn't seem that we're getting better. In fact, in the last couple of weeks worth of director's reports, <laughs> Here's the pattern. Instead of even reporting how many calls we're holding on a given day anymore, they've just taken to the blanket statement, there was no 24-hour period where we weren't holding calls, meaning we're not always holding, but we're holding frequently enough that it doesn't even make sense to break down. And then the most recent director's report says, we're not even going to report these anymore because we realize that we have to come up with a new system for reporting it because it makes it seem like we're always holding. And we like it's almost that we're not even going to have the flow of information anymore. That sounds really bad to me as a citizen. Well, we're going to be transparent, Andrew. Uh, you know, I, I haven't seen this week's report. Honestly, I haven't read it. I've had some other things going on. But, I believe it. Uh, yeah, we're going to be we're going to be transparent, and we're going to, again we're going to make the improvements that need to be made. If it's legitimate concerns, and then I'll actually I'm going to dig into it. If it's legitimate, we'll address it. Uh, some of those statements in that letter are very general, very vague. Uh, you know, I don't do well with general and vague statements. Give me examples. On this day, at this time, this, 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 this. I mean, anybody can make general and vague statements, it's, especially if they're going to word them 
to, to, to want to form them to meet their narrative. But do we have, again, do we have improvements? Absolutely, we have improvements that could be made. Do I want people to get off at the end of their shift on time? Absolutely, I want them to get off on, at the end of their shift on time. And I think some of those things we can work on. Um, you know, we, again, it, I'm going to be over there, and we're going to get into it, and we're going to, we're going to do what we do. All right. Well, I look forward to, I mean, obviously I want the best. And certainly I know our first responders, it's always a, I support them all. I want them to be happy. And if they're very unhappy, I want to figure out if that's something that can be fixed or if it's the people themselves that need to be fixed. I don't know. That's the problem, right? But that's where we're at. Question for you about the lifeguard towers. Uh, I fully support, if the county is going to have access to the beaches, we got to have guards. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world to me. I don't mind the allocation of money. It all makes sense. My question is, where are you going to find lifeguards to staff these towers? Because we don't exactly have a surplus of available of-age lifeguards. That That's not a problem we have. We have a shortage, typically, is my understanding. Yeah, well, we're going to do what we do. We're going to, you know, we're going to advertise. We're going to recruit and go to the, your seniors in high school, your young college students, and, and up. And uh, we're, we're going to recruit. We'll just we'll do what we do. And then if we need to shift resources, rotate resources within uh, water safety. That's what we'll do. But you know, the, the initiative's there, and we'll 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 meet the we'll meet the initiative one way or the other. OLF eight. We now have not just the improved offer from Fred Hammer, but a second offer on the table, right? Yeah, we get we received another letter this week, um, and the board talked about it this morning. Uh, they both, you know, the second letter, uh, that that's not their first letter they've sent. They've kind of been engaged from a distance, if you will, uh, since since we started talking about selling a little fake. But we'll see where the board wants to go. You know, those things that uh, do diligence, time to do the time for due diligence. Of course, always the the, the price, price per acre, uh, the time to get the closing, the earnest money. When does it go hard? How well are you going to uh, adhere to the master plan overlay? Uh, your vision, you know, you're going to do the town center. Are you really going to adhere to the master plan? All of those things are, are important as we move forward, and uh, the board should have a robust discussion this morning, I would think. We are down a commissioner, obviously, because Commissioner Bender is no longer on the board. He's moved over to be the supervisor of elections. We're waiting on the governor's office. Um, two questions. Have you been involved at all in this process? Do you have any time frame from the governor's office of when we can expect? And do you even know anything about any kind of lists or who's been proposed for that? Uh, I'm, I'm not heard, personally, I've not heard from the governor's office. I don't know what the time frame is. If it's going to, you know, it might be sooner rather than later. It might be later rather than sooner. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, myself and Allison have met with Buck Mitchell last Friday. And, you know, he just wanted to come in and, ask a few questions and kind of get how we're moving as a county and, and operations and some things. And I believe uh, Walker Wilson has requested some time with Allison. And those are the two we've heard from. But as far as uh, I, I don't know, we'll just see how the governor moves. But until then, we'll just keep driving forward. The uh, Delta Concrete Crushing Facility, theoretically, we're going to have a final decision today. Is that what you expect? That is what I expect, yes. 
man, it'd be nice to be done with the issue because <laughs> I just feel like yes, they've been in limbo be. for so long and, you know, residents have been asking questions and we'd keep pushing this thing down the road. So I'd love to get an answer on this. Um, also, one thing just people may not be aware of is, do I read this right, that the SRIA representative by statute had to leave when Bender left? Uh, Derek Green resigned from the Marine Advisory Committee, but all the other committee appointees are going to stay pending whoever gets put in as the new person wanting to keep them as well, right? Yeah, that's you're exactly correct. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Perdido Bay boat ramp, um, how close is that to being open? Because <laughs> I, my wife, I had made the mistake. I had made the mistake of thinking that the ribbon, it was going to be a ribbon cutting, not a groundbreaking back in January. And so I was like, well, we should, we were driving past her there and we should go look at it. And I go in and I'm like, oh, we're not supposed to be in here. <laughs> this is a construction zone still. <laughs> but I did manage to glimpse that it's like, it looks almost done. It is almost done. Um, by invoicing, we're about 85% complete. I think we're probably, in reality, a little bit more than that. But we think we'll, we'll be open and ready uh, by the end of March at least. And coming into spring, we'll be ready for that amenity to open up. And it'll be a great amenity. It's been a lot of hard work and a lot of drive to get to this point. So, again, just another another good project that's moving forward. And also by the end of March, we think we're going to open the Beulah Firehouse. That's another good project. Oh, okay. That's moving. I went and toured that the other day. And it's uh, just an impressive facility, and I think uh, two 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 large projects are going to be come to fruition and completion by the by the end of March. The discussion about Deanna Oleski and and supporting her reappointment by the governor that'll come up this summer is that that's kind of a formality. I mean, I know there's been a lot of stuff around this relationship, but do you expect the board to support that, or do I mean, what what do you think? I, I'm, I don't know, honestly, uh, it kind of caught us off guard. It's a, it's a, something that there's a, I, I'm understanding there's a committee that makes recommendations to the governor's office. Okay. And I, it's not something we pursued. It's just something, the deadline is by February the uh, 23rd, which is the day after our next meeting. So we put it on this agenda. Uh, we received it, I think. I think the letter's dated January 23rd, but, uh, so I, you know, it's kind of a simplistic thing. Yes, no, or no opinion or something like that. <laughs> right. So, and I, and quite honestly, I don't know how much weight it really pulls, uh, but we'll see what the board wants to do. I, I'm not really sure. And the uh, last thing, just because they're coming up pretty soon, is we have two town halls on the agenda for District 5, Stephen Barry, and for Michael Kohler, District 2, right? Coming up, what, next week, I think, and maybe the week after is the other one? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Two town halls. And, uh, you know, those, those, they're good. It's good for the citizens to be able to come and, and talk about their concerns or sometimes they vent or sometimes ask questions or sometimes we always try to inform of projects that are coming up or issues that are being addressed. And so, um, yeah, there'll be two, two town halls. And it, it's funny when you go to town halls because you're in District 5, yeah, the demographic is different. Yeah. The issues there are different than they're going to be totally different than what they are in District 2. And so it's, uh, they'll be interesting. I think it's, I think they're good. I mean, they're time consuming after a long day, but it's good to go meet with the citizens and, and take their input. I will give you, just to put a bug in your ear, Santa Rosa County is going to do a thing where they're going to send staff and no commissioner on purpose 
to do five each district town halls about the budget to answer people's questions and explain the future of the county in terms of budget stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't think we've ever done that in Escambia County, but I thought that was an interesting idea. I really like it. And I just wanted to kind of, in case you hadn't heard they were doing that, I wanted to mention it to you as a, a maybe future kind of thing. Uh, Wes Moreno, he is Escambia County Administrator. We look forward to the meeting today. As always, sir, thank you for the work. Thanks for the time answering our questions, man. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. All right, Andrew. Appreciate it now. Thank you. Absolutely. Very good. 552 on News Radio 92.3, informative, local, dependable. If you are um, thinking about needing you know, heating, air conditioning, electrical, plumbing, any kind of work like this, you want to make sure that you call people who are going to show up on time, be professional, do the work right the first time with the right quality products. That's Peden Heating, Air Conditioning, and Electrical. And they've got offices all over the area. I mean, everything from Panama City to Destin, Fort Walton, big location here in Pensacola, going west into Baldwin County and even over into Mobile. And like the whole area because they have been expanding recently and they just do such a good job um if right now if you get a new air conditioning system purchase you get a free tanked water heater along with that peden is also hiring air conditioning technicians plumbers and electricians in all of the markets and of course they're now serving mobile county alabama and tallahassee florida so expanding east and expanding west find out more about how they can help you at peden p-e-a-d-e-n.com Pensacola, it's almost time for the most Mardi Gras for all y'all event of them all. The Grand Parade, Saturday, February 10th at 2 p.m. in downtown Pensacola. And the only thing that could top the Grand Parade is Fat Tuesday, February 13th, starting at 11 a.m. in Seville Court. A big, easy-style Mardi Gras festival, including a crawfish boil, Cajun food trucks, and all the dancing and partying downtown can handle. See you at the Grand Parade and Fat Tuesday, February 10th and 13th. Why is Bray Jewelers the best place to buy an engagement ring? Come in and see our selection. I promise you, we have more diamond engagement rings than you'll see anywhere in the panhandle of Florida. But it's what you do for people that they don't expect that they remember. The little things that we do, we want to deliver special experiences for you at Beret. We love doing what we do and we love making people happy. We want every person that walks into the store to feel like you're part of our family. I want everybody to have an amazing experience at Beret Jewelers. Serving overseas was just the beginning. We might be home from war, but our mission continues in communities all across the country. It's why we're out there in times of peace and crisis, providing meals to the hungry and supplies to the sick. It's why we're giving strength to those who are too weak and bringing resources to those without them. Service doesn't stop when we're done serving. It's what makes us the VFW. Learn more at vfw.org. Get news at the top and bottom of every hour with WEAR TV, our local news team, and Fox News on News Radio Pensacola. You've got mail. attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Let me tell you something. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from our lady of 
Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away. Passed away. So if this speech was supposed to be the see, I'm perfectly fine, look at how indignant I can get at them daring to challenge my memory. Um, it's a bad sign when in the middle of the speech you can't remember what the thing is that you wear every day to remind yourself about your son. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from Our Lady of... He can't remember it. And look, people make mistakes of memory all the time, but you're trying to make the point that the report was biased and engaged in a kind of um, you know ad hominem attack against his mental capability, and yet... His mental capability is exactly what the challenge is that they said they wouldn't prosecute because of. We can't get a conviction because the jury will see him as a senile old man who can't remember stuff, and that's just the way it goes. And then later on in the same speech, he's talking about Gaza, and he makes really bad gaffe coming in a week where he's said that he met with people who are dead because he mistook which person he was talking about. The conduct of the response... In Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, has been um, over the top. I think that, uh, as you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. Uh, the president of Egypt, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi? Because I wasn't aware that uh, Mexico bordered on the Gaza Strip. I mean, look, I'm, I give a lot of grace. I make mistakes on the air. Everybody makes gaffes on the air. That happens. Live, it's, I get it. The problem is that it's such a pattern now and in the same speech where he comes up there to try to prove to us that everything is fine, has several gaffes or gaps and doesn't do a good job answering the questions from Peter Ducey either. So Steve Taylor's in the newsroom this morning with our headlines. Steve? Well, good morning and happy Friday. During a hearing in front of a Senate subcommittee yesterday, the three largest pharmaceutical executives admitted patients in the U.S. are paying too much. Executives at Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Bristol Myers Squibb were summoned in front of the Senate Health Committee, and they were confronted about the American prices compared to other wealthy countries. A hungry bear tried to get into the North Bend, Oregon home through the doggy door, and surveillance video on the back deck of the home showed the bear pushing on windows and then trying to get through the pet door the bear did not get inside, uh, but basically because it was a big bear and a little doggy door. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm always amazed by people who have dog doors, especially ones for larger dogs. Yeah. Like, you know, the the door is only as good as the hole, right? Right. And if the hole is people size, <laughs> it's not such a great security measure. Steve, go. thanks for the update. You're listening to News Radio 92.3. WNRP Golf Breeze, Milton, Pensacola.